hey, you know, nothing like speaking to a bunch of people after they just stuffed themselves with a gigantic <laughs> meal. And uh, so I know some of you will be agreeing with everything I say. <laughs> so look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. If, you fall asleep, if you fall asleep and he sees you, you will be in the talk. <laughs> Just a thought, okay. Hey, uh, you know, um, yesterday, today we heard about, you know, how people just really wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. But you know, it, God was like an undercover cop. You know, he comes into this world, he, there's a mission that he had. Uh, people didn't really recognize the fact that he was God in the flesh all along, but he said some things. He said, I came to seek and to save those who were lost. He said, I came to destroy, <clears throat> excuse me, the works of the devil. And, and he said, I come that you would have life and life to the full. And I, I think um, with that life comes eternal life. And so um, I, I want to talk about that today. I'm going I'm to tell three quick stories. I think they have a lot in common uh, with each other. And then I hopefully we, we'll be able to say they have a lot in common with ourselves. Amen? Amen. How many of you uh, would want, if, if there's a heaven, if there's a hell, and I believe there is, uh, it, it, how, many, how many of you believe you're going to die one day? Anybody believe that? Okay. How many of us are not looking forward to that day? Okay. And how many of us want to go, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. That's what you got to do to get there. And uh, how many of you, though, if there is eternal life when this is over, would want to spend eternity with Jesus or with God? Anybody? Okay, and the other place is hell. There's, there's, there's only two options. And uh, I really believe that it's God's desire that we would spend eternity with him. I don't believe that Jesus came to keep us out of hell. I believe he came that the door to heaven would be opened. For the Bible says that God so loved the, the, the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, and then it says, he that believes is, is not condemned, but he who doesn't believe is condemned already because they've not believed on the name of the only begotten son of God. So here's Jesus, he's out doing his thing, and people are mesmerized, and, and maybe, uh, maybe there's a person who wants him to I want, hey, get to the point. And so the Bible says in the book of Mark, in the 10th chapter, beginning at the 17th verse, and just for the expedience of time, uh, Jesus takes to the road again, and he's followed by this large crowd. And out of the crowd comes this man. And let me just say this uh, before I go into this. Every time I talk to kids, I, I, I said, how many of you think God has too many rules? How, how, I know you don't feel that way now, but how many of you have ever felt God had too many rules? Anybody? Has anybody ever felt like that? How many of you would love for have, to have had God change some of those rules, maybe when you were in a different part of your life? Amen? Look at your neighbor say, neighbor. He is not changing that rule for you, okay? So, uh, so this man, he, he busts out of the crowd, and he comes out in front of everybody, and he drops on his knees in front of Jesus. And he asks the most important question you could ever ask. Good teacher, good rabbi, he says. What can I do to have eternal life? He, maybe Jesus hasn't talked about it enough, and he wants him to get to it. What, what do I got to do to have eternal life? And so Jesus responds to him, and he says, well, why do you call me good? Because there's no one that's good. Jesus' words, not Bill Page's words. Jesus says there's no one that's good except God. Now, Jesus didn't say he wasn't good. He just didn't know he was talking to God in the flesh. And really, that means no one is good in and of themselves. Paul says, who wrote 13 books in the Bible, in me dwells no good thing, but it's not I that lives, it's Christ who lives within me. Amen? Amen. So what can I do to have eternal life? Nevertheless, you know the commandments, Jesus says, and he, and he says this, don't commit, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, honor your mom and your dad. How many of you have broken any of those rules? Anybody? <laughs> oh, just, just a couple of y'all, good. <laughs> 
whatever. <laughs> well, let, let, let's, take, let's take the rule breaking test. He, he, he says, don't commit murder. How many of you have never murdered anybody? Never. If you've never murdered, it's not a trick quiz. Okay. <laughs> How many of you have never murdered anyone? Raise your hands. Okay. Jesus says, though, if you have ever hated someone in your heart, as far as God is concerned, you are a murderer. How many murders we got in the house? How many of us don't ever want to get murdered? So really, what's wrong with God's rules? He says, don't commit adultery. How many of you never committed adultery? Jesus says, if you ever had the desire to have sex with somebody who was not your husband or your wife, that is adultery. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor. Oh, I hope you don't ask me to raise my hand now. Just a thought. Okay. So how many of us would not want our spouses to commit adultery on us, though? What's wrong with God's rules? He says, don't steal. How many of us have ever stolen something? How many of us don't like our stuff getting stolen, though? What's wrong with God? Don't lie. How many of us have ever lied about something? How many of us don't like being lied to or lied on? What's wrong with God's rules? And he, don't cheat, he says. How many of you have ever cheated at something? How many of you ever cheated playing cards? Anybody here cheat playing cards? <laughs> okay, if you cheated playing cards, raise your hand. Keep your hand up in the air. Look around the room. Say, neighbor. Don't play cards with these people, okay? How many of you in playing with a deck of cards have ever cheated playing solitaire? How many of you have ever done that? <laughs> it's pretty bad when we cheat ourselves. How many of us don't like being cheated? And then he says, honor your mother and your father. How many of us have ever disrespected our parents? How many of us have ever cursed our parents under our breath or maybe even to their face somewhere along the line? Jesus, the loving one, Jesus, Mr. Compassion in himself. If any man or woman curses their mother or their father, let them die the death, he says. Dang. How many of us as parents would never want to be disrespected by our children? What's wrong with his rules? And let me, let me just say, suppose this young man was here, and because we're in, in the house of God, he would have his yarmulke on. And as, as I'm asking you questions here, I, I've noticed that he's not raised his hand one time. And me being the confrontative type person that I am, maybe, you know, enough is enough. And I say to him, what's up with you? How come everybody else is being real and they're raising their hands, but you're not raising your hand? Here's what he says to Jesus. Master, I've kept all of those rules since I was a little boy. You know what the Bible said? And Jesus, who knew all men, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. His heart warmed towards him, another translation says. So in other words, this guy is nothing like us. And then Jesus says to him, but you lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you have. Give the money to the poor. Pick up your cross. Come on and follow me, and I will teach you about it. And you'll, I'm sorry, he says, and you will have riches in heaven, seemingly where he said he wanted to go. And in one translation says, and at that saying, his countenance fell. So in other words, maybe he was sitting here tonight, and he sees us raising our hands, and he's saying to himself, man, I'm nothing like these people. And when Jesus tells him to do that, his countenance falls. And he turned and he walked away because he was very wealthy. Instantly, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you see what kind of problems rich people will have about going to heaven? He didn't say rich people couldn't go to heaven, but he had also said you can't have two gods in your life. You can't serve God and money because you come to love one and despise the other. Who's Bill's favorite character in the Bible besides Jesus? Peter. Excuse me. Peter says, well, then who can have eternal life? And I think Peter's thinking, man, if this guy can't get into heaven, how am I going to get into heaven? 
Am I wasting my time hanging out with this Messiah guy? And Jesus says, with human beings, it is impossible for anyone to have eternal life. But with God, all things are possible. Now, you can read that for yourself. It begins in Mark, the 10th chapter, the beginning of the 17th verse. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor. neighbor. If you're going to get into heaven, God's going to have to do something. <laughs> and, and, and maybe some of you, because I'm looking at some of you have a real quizzical look on your face like, maybe you never heard it quite like this. And, and so, so ask me, say, well, Bill, what seems to be the problem? In the book of Romans, in the fifth chapter, the 12th verse, it says, this then is what has happened. Sin has made its entry into the world through one man, Adam, and with sin came death. And the end result, sin and death passed on to the whole human race, and no one could break free from it because no one themselves were free from sin. And you know, I talk to kids about this all the time, so we'll, we'll make it kind of clear. Uh, if, if Claudia and I want to have a child, and I'm HIV positive, and Claudia is HIV positive, we get together and do what it takes to have a child, that child is probably going to be born what? What did the child have to do with it? Does the child suffer the consequences? Yes. Okay, nobody argues that principle. Well, the Bible says back in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam one simple rule when he created man. He puts the first thing he does, he gives him a job. Take care of this garden. Oh, by the way, there's a tree in the middle of the garden, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, don't eat from that tree. For the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. How many people have heard this story before? How many of you have ever said to yourself, man, I could have kept that one rule, dang, huh? Anybody ever feel that way? <laughs> I mean, that's a real simple rule, but a very serious consequence that goes with it. It'd be like God saying, Bill, don't ever let me see you touch this little music stand here. If you do that, you're going to die, but you can do anything else in the world you want to do. He walks out the door, and next thing you know, I'm sitting over here playing with this thing. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> okay, and then God recognizes that it's not good for man to be alone, puts Adam to sleep, opens up his side, takes out a rib, creates the woman, boom. And they have dominion over everything. In Genesis 3, the Bible says, and the serpent came into the garden, and he was more cunning than any of the other beasts. And he says to Eve, did the Lord say you should not eat from the tree? She says, yes, the Lord said we should not eat from the tree, nor should we touch it. For the day that we eat from the tree, we will surely die. Now, so she's in the middle. And, and so here, we'll make, we'll make this stand her. Okay, now God has said, you will die if you eat from that tree. The serpent says, you won't die. So now it becomes a thing of who you're going to believe. And then he kind of like soups it up a little bit because God knows the day that you eat from the tree, you're going to be just like God. Well, they were already created in the image of God. But if you try to be like God without God, you've just made yourself a God. Amen. Amen. And the Bible says, I don't get this verse. She looks at the tree. She looks at the tree and can tell that it's good for food and has the ability to make one wise. How do you do that just by looking at something? I think there were some incredible things going on before the fall. And so she takes and she eats from the tree. And seemingly nothing happens. And then she gave it to her husband who was there with her. And I always say, what's going on with this brother? Is he like standing outside, hmm, let me see if something happened to her. God can just put me to sleep and give me another woman. Okay, give me that. But nothing happened. But remember, the rule wasn't really given to her originally. The rule was given to him. And so she gave the fruit to him. You see, man is given the authority, but women have the influence. Amen? Amen, Amen ladies? Amen. How many men know that? You don't like to admit that, but oh, man, we lose every time. So, so she, he eats and boom. Immediately, they realize their eyes, are, their eyes are open. They realize that they're naked. They run from each other. They sow fig leaves together to hide themselves. And then here comes God in the garden of the cool of the day. They hear his voice. The first question God ever asked a man, 
Adam, where are you? And if God stepped to you tonight or me tonight and he said, where are you? I don't think he's expecting us to say the Grandview Lodge. <laughs> but where are we in regards to our relationship with him? And Adam says, we heard you in the garden. We were afraid because we were naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? The answer simply should have been. Yes. Check out his answer. The woman. <laughs> the one you gave me, she told me to eat. How many of you ever blamed somebody for your stuff? Somewhere in your life, you blame somebody else. It, just 15 of us. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so he says to Eve, what is this that you have done? The serpent told me to eat. And so he, he curses the serpent, but the damage is done. All disobedience is sin. And now Adam and Eve become sinners. If this sinner gets together with this sinner to have a baby, guess what that baby's going to be born? How do you know, Bill? Because as soon as they had two kids, one kid kills the other kid. What's your name, say neighbor? Dang. But the damage is done. And now sin has been placed in the human family all the way down to you and I. And we're born with this horrible disease called sin. And Jesus came to do something about that. And I, I love the way that he deals with people. And uh, so I'm going to use this. And, and so I'm going to, that's one story. And, and so... Maybe what was wrong with that man? He was keeping all the rules, but he still had the disease. If you got measles and you get the little bumps on your face and you're scratching, that's not measles. Measles is a virus on the inside. That's what causes those bumps. And whether you've got a thousand or one, you still have the disease. Amen? Amen. Everybody get that so far? Yep. Okay. So one day the Bible says this, and I'll read this portion in case you think I'm making stuff up. Okay. The one way Jesus was, and this is a, a kind of a, a hint to us, Philippians 2.5 in the Philip translation says it this way, let Jesus Christ be your example as to what your attitude should be. Like if you really want to see how to live life, check out Jesus' life and pattern your life after his life with the help of God. And one of the things that Jesus was always doing, he was always praying. He was always spending time with his father. And as a result of that, there was a byproduct that came out of that. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain and when he came down, he was so radiant, you had to put a veil over him? He didn't go up to get the radiance. He went up to be with God. And by being with God, there's a byproduct that comes out of that. It's like radiation exposure. Jesus would always spend time with his dad. And he would come out from those times and miracles would be performed. Or he would perform miracles and then he'd go back, almost like to the filling station, more or less. And they had this incredible communion. And when he shows up, people want to hear what he has to say. And so in, in John 7, it says this. After this meeting, it says, so they broke up their meeting and he went home while Jesus went off to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives was a place where Jesus would commonly go to pray. Early the next morning, he returned to the temple and the entire crowd came to hear him. So he sat down and he began to teach them. And then I want to stop right there. And I'm sure you all know the story. So here, here is Jesus. He's seated inside and, and he's teaching. He's teaching the people of God. Again, here, the Bible doesn't tell us what he said. That message wasn't for you. It was only for those people there. But maybe 15 or 20 minutes earlier, those scribes and Pharisees, those religious guys, are outside of this house. Now, this is my own imagination. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but it had to be something similar to this. And maybe they're looking inside of a window. Maybe they were suffering from uh, peeping Tom's disease. And so here they're looking inside. And inside, there's a man and a woman engaged 
in sexual intercourse. There's nothing wrong with that if it's the husband and wife, uh, but better if the husband and wife are married to each other. Amen? <laughs> and seemingly that's not the case. And so they're looking, and, and you know, I don't know if they had glass back in those days, they haven't done it. You know, I wonder how much fog got on that glass before they decided to do something. How many of you have ever, oh, here we go. How many of you have ever seen something sexually wrong on a television or a computer, it just popped up. I mean, you weren't looking at it. It just, poof, poof, and there it was. How many ever seen something sexually wrong in your life? Raise your hand. How many of you can feel the Holy Spirit say, you need to turn that off right now? Anybody ever turn it off? Anybody? Okay, how many of you, just raise your hand, how many of you ever turned it off? How many of you just turned back over there 10 minutes later to see what else was going on? Anybody ever do that? <laughs> Y'all don't want to be real. Okay. Oh, man, maybe I'm just a little too real for y'all. Okay, so, so. So they break into the house or open the door and they yoke this woman up out of bed. Now we don't know what happens to the guy. Maybe he hears them coming in the front door, Pew, he goes out the back door. That's going home a different way, amen? Okay, and so, and, and, and they jerk this woman up out of bed and, and they take her down to the temple. Can you imagine? Here's what I want you to do, close your eyes. I want you to think of the worst thing you've ever done in your life. Okay, open your eyes. Whatever you just thought of, how many of you would not want that on the screen? Anybody here? Oh, the rest of you would want it up there? How many of you are getting sick and tired of raising your hands on stuff? Raise your hands. Okay, cool. All right. Maybe I'll, maybe I say, I'll stop asking. Okay. So help me, help me, help me work this out. You're sitting and you're listening to Jesus. They're pulling this woman through the streets, and can you imagine what that must have been like? Her hair is all messed up, her eyes are, are torn, her face is tight and feels like acetylene torches on her, her knuckles are clenched white as they drag her through the streets, and they're taking her to the temple. And while Jesus is in the middle of his sermon, the doors burst open. Okay, so, and all of a sudden, the doors burst open, boom! And so here's what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna say, and the doors burst open, boom! And the moment I say that, I want you to turn around and look at that exit sign, and then I want you to go like, <gasps> Okay, so Jesus is inside, and, and, and he's teaching the people, and then all of a sudden, the doors burst open. Boom! Wow. You guys are good at dealing with somebody else's stuff. Okay, so, 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 and maybe some of you go, I know her. Maybe some of you have seen her at the carpool. Maybe some of you have seen her down at Costco or wherever you go shopping. Why is she with them? And they bring her right down front, right in front of Jesus. And they stand her in front of Jesus, and they stand her in front of you. And by no stretch of the imagination, am I Jesus? Okay, so, so, and they, and they say, Master, they show him props. The law of Moses says, a woman caught in adultery should be stoned to death. We caught this woman committing adultery. We caught her in the very act. What do you say? And they persist. And seemingly, Jesus doesn't even listen to them. But the law of Moses says, we caught this woman. We caught her in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says she should be stoned to death. And they boom, ba boom, ba boom. And then all of a sudden, Jesus slides out of his chair, and he, he kneels down, and he begins to write on the dust on the ground. The Bible never tells us what he wrote, but they persist. And then there comes a point where Jesus stands up, and he looks at them, and he says, whichever one of you doesn't have sin in your life, you throw the first rock. He didn't say she shouldn't be stoned to death, but let's get something straight about the law of Moses. The law of Moses doesn't say the woman should be stoned to death. The law of Moses says the man and the woman should be stoned to death. Look at your neighbor say, neighbor. neighbor. Where's that man? <laughs> women, I'm looking at some of the women out there like, yeah, where is he? 
Okay, so then he kneels down and he begins to write again. And the Bible says this time when he's writing, these guys are standing there and they began to walk away from the oldest to the youngest. Here's what I believe. Jesus is putting them on blast. I don't think he's using names, but I think he's using sins. Maybe times and dates. He knows everything about these guys. He's just writing this stuff down. And like, you know, they're... <laughs> no. How many of us know that God has some stuff on us? Anybody know that? How many of you wouldn't want him putting your stuff? Okay, write it out, Jesus, but just don't put my name next to it. Okay. <laughs> but here's what I believe. The only thing you could probably hear were rocks falling on the ground. <laughs> he continues to write. And now they're all gone. And whatever he's writing now, it's not for them, but it's for her. The Bible never tells us what he wrote. I wonder, though, is that life? Is that love? I'm what love is. And I love you. So does my father. That's why he sent me. And he comes up. And she's standing there. And he says to her, woman, where are the men that accuse you? And so in my own imagination, I'll be her tonight. She stands there. I believe that she is so transfixed on what he's been writing. I think that what he's been writing has been just piercing her heart in the most wonderful way. She goes, And they're gone. And she turns to him and she says, there are none, Lord. And he says, then I don't condemn you either. In other words, I don't give you today what you deserve. According to the law of Moses, she should have been stoned to death along with the man that got away. But that day he chose for her not to die. We don't know why. Why was he merciful? Let me just say something about kids. I've ministered to tens of thousands of kids. I never met a kid that didn't want to be forgiven. I've met many who felt that they couldn't be forgiven. Maybe some of those kids are in this room. But he didn't forgive her. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And she turns and she walks away. The incredible thing in the story, she never says thank you. Maybe she gets this far. Oh. And Jesus is already seated again back to Bible study. And she gets a chance. She gets the opportunity to go home a different way. Different than the way she came, given the break of a lifetime. Knowing that at this point she probably should be dead, but she's not. Maybe she goes home and she thinks, why me? Maybe she goes home and she thinks about what she's done, and maybe she says, what was I thinking? What was I really looking for? Why me? And Jesus is back to Bible study. Two stories. They have one thing in common. Let me tell you a third story. 
Back in March of 1997, Claudia and I had been married for 30 years. Now, some of you have heard me share this story. She's a, it's a Friday towards the end of the month, and she says to me before she goes to work, she says, I'm not really feeling good today. I said, well, then why don't you just stay home? But she, that's not the way Claudia rolls. If she, she almost has to be on her deathbed not to go. She says, no, I'm, I'm going to go. So she goes to work. She's there for about an hour. Her boss calls me and says, Bill, we don't like the way Claudia's acting. She seems a little strange. We think she's sick. Why don't you come and pick her up? We don't trust her to drive the car. So my son, uh, my youngest son and I, we drove out there, and he brought Claudia's car back, and I brought Claudia's car. Uh, I mean, I brought Claudia back, and, and, and he, I said, Claudia, what's going on? And she says, I don't know. I don't feel good. So we get home, and she goes upstairs, and she lays down. We live in the attic of our house, and, and um, come down the stairs, you come out in the kitchen. And so about an hour later, she comes down in the kitchen. At this point, I can only tell us when she's not here. She's only wearing her underwear. At that time, 30 years of marriage, all right, look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, what does this have to do with Jesus? Okay. It'll make sense in a minute. But in 30 years of marriage, I've never seen Claudia walk around the house in her underwear. She always wears pajamas. She always wears a robe or clothes. That's it. Never, never in her undies. So I was, she, I, was, I was like, yeah, we've seen a little puppy. You know, or Scooby-Doo. Okay. And she goes to the bathroom, comes out of the bathroom, reaches up on top of the refrigerator, takes a handful of Cheerios. So I said to Claudia, what are you doing? She says, I'm eating Cheerios. I said, wow, that's weird. And she goes upstairs. An hour later, comes back downstairs, underwear, bathroom, handful of Cheerios. I said, Claudia, let's go to the hospital and get checked out. She goes, no, I'm fine. I said, no, we should go. I'm fine, she says. And so she goes back upstairs. She's got a friend whose name is Lois. Lois is a nurse. And I called Lois. I said, Lois, come over here and tell Claudia she needs to go get checked out at the hospital. Lois comes over. She says, Claudia, why don't we go get checked out at the hospital? Claudia says, okay, let's go. <laughs> How many people can relate to what I just said? Okay, so we get to the hospital, and uh, they check her out, and they can't find anything to matter. Now, we've dated for five years prior, and we're married for 30. I know something's the matter. And, uh, but they go, well, we can't find anything, and they go to release her. So on my Bible, my Bible is monogrammed right here with my name. So let's just pretend this is the release form. And so they ask Claudia to sign the release form. She signs it from this corner to this corner, straight across the paper. And now they realize, hey, something's the matter here. And so they took in to do some more extensive blood tests. And if your liver count is normal, your liver count, according to the test that they gave her, is 0 0.9, 0.10, 1.1. Claudia's liver count was 19.3. And so they admitted her, and they hooked her up intravenously and everything like that. Our family doctor comes in. She examines Claudia, and she comes out, and she says to me, prepare yourself for the worst. Right from the beginning. You know what? I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to hear her say, we got this. You were in time. And so they, they put her in these things, and there comes the point she becomes more and more delirious. She starts pulling the tubes out of herself. So they put her in leather restraints. She eats through the restraints. And the next day, they realize they can't handle it. So they take her from our hospital in New Jersey, where she's at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. On Sunday, Claudia goes into a full coma. Her eyes roll back up in her head. And I remember standing there looking at her. My pastor went to lay hands on her. And he says, Claudia's not here. Claudia's in the presence of the angels. This is what he said. Tuesday night comes, the doctor examines Claudia. My oldest son and I are there now. And he says, Mr. Page, if your wife doesn't get a liver, now it's Tuesday, after that Friday, if your wife doesn't get a liver by Thursday, she will be dead on Friday. I don't want to hear this. 
At that time, Mount Sinai was supposed to be the best in the world as far as liver transplants were concerned, but the problem was Claudia never had her liver. She was never on a liver list. So my son Randy and I leave the hospital that night devastated. And we get about 20 blocks from the hospital, and the Lord speaks into my heart and says, call the hospital. At first I heard that I said, that's not the Lord. I thought it was just like wishful thinking or something. And I drove another block, and it seemed as though God reached in and grabbed my solar plexus and said, I said, call the hospital. We didn't have a cell phone at that time. I pulled over on 3rd Avenue, 123rd Street in Harlem. Doesn't make much sense to you. There's a phone booth there. I called the nurse's station. I said, hey, this is Bill Page. The nurse says, Mr. Page, thank God you got our message. A liver has come for your wife. And so the next day, Claudia gets a liver. The next day, I was slated for a debate with the Archdiocese of the Episcopal Church, the Pentecostal view of death compared to the Episcopal view of death. So I went to that because I didn't want to sit at the hospital. There was nothing I could do there. And that knucklehead doesn't show up. And so I have to speak on death as my wife's life hangs in the balance. The first thing she says after getting the liver and coming out of the coma, why did you let them take my liver? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? She didn't get it. She didn't understand. She didn't understand like that woman probably didn't understand. She didn't understand like that man who was keeping all the rules didn't understand. For Claudia to be alive today, somebody had to die. The only thing we knew of the donor was an older white female from the Midwest, just a little teeny segue away. I'm speaking at the Czech, in the Czech Republic to kids there on a work program. I tell this story, and I give the dates. This boy comes up to me and says, Bill, my grandmother died that day, and they sent her liver to the East Coast, and she's from Wisconsin. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor. neighbor. Those chills you feel? That ain't the air conditioner. <laughs> say, neighbor. neighbor. Dang. <laughs> Somebody had to die. For that woman, the wages of sin is death. That sin had to be paid for. And Jesus, for whatever reason, chose for her not to have to pay for it. Regardless of how good that man was, in his own eyes, he wasn't good enough because he had the disease. And Jesus had to die for him. I wonder when he got it or if she got, he got it. I wonder when she got it or if she got it. Here's what I think. I think this could be a time that she might have gotten it. Maybe one of her friends comes to her and says, remember, remember that rabbi guy who let you go that day, who shut up those religious people? They killed them. And maybe she's just blown. Why? Well, he kind of felt that if he died on the cross, he would pay the sins for the whole world. And the light comes on. Maybe that man who was keeping all the rules finally heard this. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. Oof. And the light comes on. For Claudia, as she began to turn, return to normal, as she begins to think about this woman who thought about other people by leaving her organs to medicine. Boom, and the light comes back on. 
When do you get it? When do I get it? When does it become a living reality for us that for us to have this eternal life, Jesus had to die for us? When does that become so significant to us that nothing else can be more important? That the love of God was demonstrated for you and I that while we were sinners, while we did not have it together, Jesus died for us. I'll close with this little teeny weeny story. In 1928, there was a young man born. His name was uh, Jack Lucas. We went to war 13 years later with, with the Japanese after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He turned 14 years old. He's a big kid, got a birth certificate, forged it, and joined the United States Marine Corps. Makes it through boot camp at Paris Island, makes it through advanced training. He gets sent out to Hawaii, and he's loading ships, going over. The Marines find out about it, make a long story short. They say, Jack, we're going to have to send you home. He says, you send me home, I'll get another birth certificate, and I'll join another branch of the military. He wanted to fight for his country. And uh, they said, OK, you can stay here, but you, you can't go to combat. You can just load the ships. He says, OK. Two weeks later, he stows away on one of those ships, going across to fight in the Philippines or in the Pacific. That ship is on its way to Iwo Jima. Comes out of hiding two weeks out at sea. They don't know anything about him. They assign him to one of these Marine infantry units, and he storms the beaches of Iwo Jima. He's in a fighting hole with two other Marines, and they're fighting for their lives. Two Japanese soldiers sneak up on the, on the hole, and they throw two hand grenades in the hole where Jack and these two other guys are fighting. You know what? In war, you're not really fighting for your country. You're fighting for your friends, you're fighting for that man or not to your left and to your right, and now that women are going to go into harm's way, that man or woman to your left and to your right. And Jack sees the hand grenade, takes his rifle butt, jams it down in the ground, grabs the other hand grenade, pulls it under himself. Both grenades explode, and as a result of what he did, he received the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was the youngest recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor in military history. He had to do something above and beyond the call of duty, because the Marines don't teach you to do that, but he chose to do that. He chose to do what Jesus did. When Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, then he would lay down his life for his friends. I call you my friends if you keep my commandments. He received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Jesus didn't receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. Here's what Jesus received, and we'll close right here. Philippians 2.5. Let Jesus Christ be your example as to what your attitude should be. For he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal, but stripped himself of all privilege by consenting to become a slave. And having been born a mortal man, he lived a life of utter obedience, even to the extent of dying. And the death that he died was the death of a common criminal. And that is why God has now lifted him so high and has given him a name beyond all names. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven, the earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All those stories have one common thread, and so does your story. For us to live, somebody had to die. And that somebody chose for you not to die, and chose for me not to die, so that we could have life, and life to the full life to the full includes living forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you very much. Thank you so much that you love us enough to send your son to pay the penalty for our sins. 
we don't get that. And that your son was willing to do it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live our life responding to that kind of love. I pray that you'd burn it in our hearts. That for whatever reason, in your economy, we were worth dying for. And if we were worth dying for, I pray that you would enable us and empower us to live for you, to live responding the rest of our lives to that love. Thank you so much. Bless our little groups together tonight and give us a freedom to talk and share. We just love you and we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, gang.